As we get started here, um, I just want to give you fair kind of behind-the-scenes look about the way I really wanted to approach this series. You see, when someone is on the hot seat, they don't have a lot of time to prepare for whatever you're asking them. That's why it's called the hot seat. They don't have a prepared, like, um, thing to, to tell or a prepared speech to say. So I was thinking, this is going to be an amazing series. For several weeks, we had people put their questions in the box about what kind of questions they wanted the Bethlehem pastors to answer. And so I was thinking, this is going to be so amazing. We'll have literally like a hot seat up here, and then we'll have like the box of questions with all the questions in it. Ben and I will have no idea what's in the box. We're just going to open it up, pick out a random thing, and read it, and we will be on the hot seat. And I had this all figured out. I'm like, okay, some of these questions, maybe they'll take um, less than 30 minutes. So we could combine maybe two, three questions. We'll just keep going back to that box as long as we need to. But then there's going to be the questions where we honestly don't know the answers. And so I had this figured out too. Like we would look at those questions and we'd look at it and I'd be like, I just can't read this person's handwriting. Let's go on to the next one. You know, and, and I had this all figured out, and I was telling, you know, the other pastor here what we could do, and the other pastor did not like my idea. And he has two-thirds vote. Something about, oh, we need to know what we're talking about. We need to get the slides ready. We need to print the, you know, the program off and have the scripture reading in there, and I guess you have to, it's not enough just to know that questions are going to be answered. We actually want to acknowledge the questions first and then be ready to answer them, all this stuff. So here we are for part one, part two of Hot Seat. And I'm kidding. I was kind of for it too. I, I, I want to prepare. As I looked at the topic for today, this was an, an actual topic word for word that we're, I'm going to share with you in a minute. But the topic is kind of intimidating. To, to be honest, if I were just up here looking at this question for the first time to answer it, I would probably tell you, sorry, I can't understand the writing. Not that this is a topic that is, you know, kind of uncomfortable or awkward. It's just that this topic is so deep theologically, it takes us to a place where there is no easy answer or clear path. This is a question and a topic that church bodies, church denominations have been split on over very small details and which words you can use and which words you can't use in order to explain it. And this is a topic that I would say is not essential to the Christian faith. In fact, if you're a person that's new to God, this, this topic is, is not where I would start. But at the same time, this topic has everything to do with a person's faith in Jesus. So the question, the topic that we pulled out for, for the hot, hot Seat series is this. What is predestination and what does it mean for us? So this is a two-part question, which we didn't say you could do, but we'll take it anyway out of our grace and mercy. The first part of the question is really easy. I could, I'm going to slap up in just a minute. I'll slap up a uh, definition. I can tell you what predestination is. But then the follow-up question, what does it mean for me, is one that's going to require a little bit more. And before I give you the definition, I want to acknowledge who's in the room and who's listening to this message. Some of you have studied predestination and you feel like you have a pretty good grip on it. But at the same time, some of you have gone through formal education to learn about this stuff and you didn't get it. 
I'm glad you're here. We're going to be talking about it today, and hopefully in terms that make sense and can be applicable to your life. Now, some of you have, in the back of your mind, a definition of predestination that isn't going to match up with what I put on the screen. You might come from a different church background, a different denomination background, and your idea of predestination is going to differ. I just want to tell you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening Because what I want to do is I don't want to come to an agreement about what a denomination teaches about this. I want to come to a conclusion about what Jesus said about this and what the Apostle Paul said about this and what the other apostles said about this. So if you're here, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. And then finally, some of you are saying, okay, this is a five-syllable word, and I have no idea what it means or what it's talking about. And if that's you, welcome. I'm glad you're here. We have an awesome thing to to build up to and work on here. So what is predestination, and what does it mean for me? I'm going to put a definition up here that's my definition. If you want to disagree with it outright, you have the freedom to do that. I just think it's important to start somewhere so that we can build up to something. This wasn't taken out of a catechism. It wasn't taken out of a Lutheran confession. This is from the dark, scary places of Pastor Matt's mind. Here's the definition. Before people existed, God chose who would be saved through Christ. Now, what is this saying? This is saying that before even day one of creation, God foreknew you. He foreknew Adam and Eve before they had life, before there was matter, before there was space, before there was time. He knew every single person, and he foreknew what kind of life they would have and what they would do. And it's not just that he foreknew people, but he predestined, chose beforehand, who would be saved through Christ Jesus. And as I start to flesh out this definition and what it means, you're probably starting to have some more questions. Like the person who asked this question was head on. So this is predestination, but what exactly does it mean for me? Uh, The question that we really want to turn to is is that. What What does it mean for me? Because at face value, it seems to bring up more questions than it does answers. For example, is my destiny already determined? Like, I thought I was living this life with some sort of free will where where I end up is kind of the accumulation of my decisions. Are you saying that I have just one set destiny and I have no choice in the matter? That's a fair question to ask of rational people. And as you deep digger into this about how free will comes into play and am I just a robot or do I, how do I participate in this whole process called life, there will come a moment as you're digging into this and thinking about this where your heart will skip, skip, your heart will skip a beat and the breath from your lungs will be let out in a gasp as you consider this next question. Did God predestine me? If he chose beforehand, who would be saved? If he chose before creation, who would be saved? How do I know if I was chosen? Pastor, what do you say? I say I'm on the hot seat. As we think about this, you'll notice these lines of questions all really focus on one thing. Me. My destiny. Did God predestine me? The the, the natural thing that rational people do, I, I think all of you are rational people, you start to ask the question, if God did that, then what does that mean for me? And we focus on ourselves because 
more than anyone else, I know my past. I know my thoughts. I know my sins. I know how God has worked through me, yes, but I also know all the baggage that comes along with it. And I ask the question, well, okay, where's the evidence? Did God predestine me or not? And if he did, what's the purpose of my life? And if he didn't, what do I do with my soul? This takes us to a really dark place really quickly, and I'll just tell you, this is a similar place that Adam and Eve were brought to. God gave them a very good, loving command. Don't eat from that tree. And then the devil came in and he said, well, wait a minute, did God really say? And with his line of questioning, Adam and Eve lost their focus on God, and they started to focus and dwell on themselves. What would this give to me? How would this fruit benefit me? And quickly, something good became something bad because the focus was in the wrong place. So as we approach this topic, it's easy to take, approach it subjectively where you take your own mindset and your own presuppositions into it and you frame it according to your life. I want to invite you today to take a step back from this and ask a more objective question. Something that we often ask might be this. Why are some saved and not others? I think that objectively gets to what we're looking for here, right? Why are some saved and not others? For example, if God really did love the world that he gave his one and only son, and if Jesus truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and if a relationship with God is built on faith which God gives you, why are some saved and not others? It's okay to ask that question. If you were to ask this question to Jesus or to any of his apostles, do you know what kind of answer you'd get? You would get an answer that's not very straight and an answer that's inconsistent. Why are some saved and not others? You know why you get an inconsistent answer? Well, because in this question, there's actually two conflicting questions that you need to separate individually. You see, we view mankind and our destiny, we view it as a dark room. Well, why is the room dark? Because the light is switched off. Why is the room light? Well, because the switch is on. We, we want to view eternity that way. Why are some saved and not others? What's the switch that's different? And as Jesus would approach this topic, he said, there's a better question to ask. There's actually two separate questions, two separate issues, as you see him in his life expound on and also the Apostle Paul. The two questions are this. Why are some saved? Look at that as a separate issue. And then why are some not saved? That's its own question. That's its own topic. And just right away, why are some not saved? The reason some are not saved, Jesus would say this and Paul would say this, the reason some are not saved is because they have rejected the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life. They've rejected the Son of God, and apart from him, there is no life. Some are not saved, and they have only themselves to blame. That's the answer Jesus would give, and that's the answer any of his apostles would give. So why are some saved? Well, the, again, the answer that we would see develop is that the re reason some are saved is not because they did something. It's because of God. God redeemed them, and God gave them the gift of faith. So, so the reason some are saved has everything to do with God. So why are some not saved? Some are not saved, and it's their own, only their own fault. Some are saved, and they only have God to thank. Two different questions, two different answers. And here's the beautiful part. There, there's going to be other days we talk about this second one, but when you ask about predestination, it is exclusively about this first one. Why are some saved? 
And the more you understand this topic of predestination, we're also going to call it election because that's two fewer syllables, which saves me 40% time in this message. The reason why we look at this thing called election is because it answers this question. Well, why are some people saved? And the more you understand it, the more secure and the more comfort you find in knowing where you stand on this spectrum. Before we go there, I just want to quickly review. Predestination is this idea that God chose some to be his from eternity. And as we look at it, it's so easy to subjectively look at it from our perspective and focus on ourselves. But the true way to handle this is to look at the objective view of this. Why are some saved? And predestination gives us an answer for that. Number one on your sheet, if you're taking notes, understanding predestination will strengthen faith. It is not the start of faith. That's why I said before, if, if you're not sure about God or if you don't know if you have faith in God, this is not the place to start. This category is bracketed by people who know Jesus, recognize what he did as a historical person, have faith in him, and believe that they'll be in heaven because of what Jesus did. That is the only audience that this teaching is designed for. Predestination is not about starting faith. It's about strengthening faith. It's not about producing a new faith. It's about preserving an existing faith. And with that said, we need to be careful that we take the truths and principles from this teaching and only apply it to that category of people. When you start to try to apply it on the other end, it doesn't work. Now, we're going to see why this is such a tricky situation and why even right now you're having trouble following some of what I'm thinking. I'm having trouble following some of what I'm thinking. So you're not alone. We're in good company. But to help gain some traction with what is predestination, how how would Jesus describe it? How would his apostles describe it? We're going to turn to a book of the Bible in the New Testament. We call the book, it's actually a letter. Uh, We call it Ephesians. It's a letter that the apostle Paul wrote. And as you look at the entire book, it seems likely that maybe Paul had never even met these people before, but he was writing them a letter to encourage them about who Jesus was and who they were, and then to guide them in what that would mean in their actual lives. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, and here's my warning. First of all, an example. When a three- or four-year-old gets really excited about something and they try to tell you about it, They tend to go in circles. They tend to go on and on and on and on and on and on. And you might not follow every detail, but you can tell they're excited about it and you can tell it's important to them. I'm not saying that the Apostle Paul is a three or four year old, but when he writes about this, he kind of goes on and on and on and on. In fact, in the Greek, this entire section that's printed for you is one sentence in the Greek. And he tends to circle a little bit, and he's, you know, building on little parts here and there, but then he goes on, and it's kind of abrupt changes. He is excited about what he's about to tell them and you. And thankfully, we have the blessing of yellow font, which will help us guide through some of these verses. Here's what Paul said. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, he's setting the table here for this discussion about election. And as he sets the table, he says, here's the things that are important to keep in mind. 
First of all, notice what's not on the table. Paul doesn't say, now before we talk about this, I need to think about the kind of life you've lived. How good have you been? Are you worthy to be with God or not? He doesn't put that stuff on the table, but instead he says, before we even talk about this, we are going to praise God. This is something that we're going to celebrate because as redeemed children of God, by faith in God, we know where we stand. But I want to let you know how we got here. This is going to be for the praise of God. And he says, as we look into this, we're going to see that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. What that means is when it comes to your relationship with God, there is nothing left for chance. There is no room for doubt. Everything has been taken care of for you in Christ Jesus. There's no reason to question your faith or doubt it. We have every spiritual blessing in him. Uh, the rest of the language, you can kind of see he's just, you know, talking about this in such an excited way. Praise God because of everything Jesus did. And now we can talk about where it is he brought us to. Paul goes on. For God chose us in Christ, in Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This gives you a very clear definition. What is predestination? It means that before God even created everything, before sin and evil even touched this world, God knew it would happen, and he decided to do something about it. He decided to choose you to be holy and blameless, not through a system that you could follow, but through a sacrifice he would give. He said, I know your name. I choose you. You will be holy and blameless in my sight. You have every spiritual blessing, and that all comes to you through Christ Jesus. And as these people read the letter, and as we sit here today, 2,000 years later, later, reading his letter, the same thing comes out. Your salvation is absolutely certain because God came up with it outside of space and time, And if he came up with it outside of space and time, then nothing that happens inside of space and time can change it. Another way to think of it is this, more spatially thinking. Uh, Number two on your sheets, if you're keeping notes, your election puts the cause of your salvation well beyond your reach. Why are you saved? Why do you have a good relationship with God? The answer to those questions puts the cause far beyond your reach. You didn't have to do something for God. You didn't have to choose something for God. Quite the opposite. He chose you for salvation. You are far removed from this. So that when the Apostle Paul is talking about this topic with with people, he says, this leads us to praise God. What's on the table is praise for God because he's given us every spiritual blessing There is no doubt about our relationship with him because the cause of our salvation is far beyond our reach in a way that we can't even imagine or touch. But the question might still linger in the back of your mind. It should be lingering there. So God chose some people. Did he choose me? Pastor, how can you know whether or not someone has has been predestined for salvation in Christ? And to answer that, Paul's going to give a very vivid picture of 
what he's trying to explain. Perhaps he knows at this point, this is such a, a vague concept that I need to put some, some sort of a picture behind it so that people can, can follow along. So he goes on and he gives this picture. He says, in love, here's what he did. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. And sometimes in, in Bible translations, when it says sons, you know, sons of God, it really means sons and daughters of God. I'm glad they left it at this because this idea of adoption to sonship is really a legal term. Back in the day, which I'm glad it's changed now, but back in the day, if, if you were the son, that meant you would inherit all things. If you were the daughter, sorry, you have to go marry someone and get their stuff. But if you're the son, you gain that inheritance. And what Paul is saying here is, I don't care if you're a man or a woman or a child, you are adopted into sonship. All people have equal rights to the inheritance that Jesus won for us on the cross. Isn't that amazing? In the first century, when women were down here and men were up here, to say, everyone, you have adoption to sonship. That's the blessing. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And I want to talk about those two words, adoption and grace. Because even today, what we know about adoption is that you can't just create a pathway to adoption and make it work. For example, you can decide to adopt a child, but you have to go through the process. You have to go through the applications. You have to pay the fees. Someone has to come check out your house to make sure it's safe. All these steps. But at the end of the day, you can't just open up the option for adoption and think that it'll happen on its own. In order for an adoption to be complete, a name has to be chosen. You have to know who it is before you can adopt them and bring them into your house. And the reason why God could do this before eternity is because of that word, grace. It's, it's, it's a way to explain the kind of love that only God can have. We might choose to adopt a child because we want to be filled up. There's a hole in our heart, and, and we just want to fill them up with love, and they in turn will fill us up with love. Or to, to drop the adoption thing, some of you love Pizza, why do you love pizza? Because it tastes good. You know, there's the reciprocal aspect to it. Some of you love Minnesota winters. You were so happy to see that there was snow this morning, and you love it. I don't know why you love it. There must be something about it that you love, but the, the things we love give us something back. But grace is different. You see, grace does not love because what it loves gives something back. Grace is independent, the object does not have to do anything or give anything. The object doesn't even have to exist yet, and still that grace can be there to decide to choose it. And before the creation of this world, because God is grace, he not only foreknew you, but he predestined you, chose you to be his own through this adoption through Jesus Christ. What's, what's the point here? Well, if you think about it, God did have to choose you beforehand. He knew you before you knew him. In adoption, that's how it works. But how far back did God know you? And how, how far back did he choose you? Well, if you're God, there is no time. So number three on your sheet, you see, adoption isn't really adoption until a person is chosen. And God who exists outside of time can choose you outside of time. Before the creation of the world, 
God chose you, elected you, to be his own through Christ Jesus. Because adoption isn't real until a real person, a real name, a real identity, a real individual is chosen. He knew you. But pastor, how do you know? Am I predestined or not? As the Apostle Paul continues, he knows you're wrestling with that. And God from eternity, he kind of knew. People aren't going to understand this whole, you know, chosen before eternity. How does that all work? And as he goes forward, there's some tangible things that he gives to you to figure out where you are in that regard. Paul finishes up this way. He says, for in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. So he's saying if you are chosen, if you are predestined, you will be forgiven through Jesus. So where is your focus? Jesus. Paul does not invite you to internalize yourself and say, okay, is God in there? Am I chosen? Paul says you're looking in the wrong place. You need to focus on the redemption that was won for you through Jesus in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. You can picture this one-way, unconditional love that chose you before creation. It goes on. There's something even more tangible. Verses 9 and 10, he says this. He made known to us the mystery of his will. And a mystery of God's will means something we would never figure out, never see on our own. He made that known to us, again, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. Um, it's a lot of words, and he's adding a little bit. Here's what he means. He says, from before eternity, God had this mystery of a plan, something you couldn't see, but he made it known to you in time. What that means is, even though there's an unseen plan echoing through eternity, if that's a place, we can see that plan happening today. He chose to reveal to you this mystery that he chose you before the creation of the world. And as he goes on, there's one more verse I want to borrow from. It's from verse 13. This hits home. He says, and you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You wonder, am I part of the chosen? Am I predestined? Paul would say, you were included in that when you heard the message about Jesus. That is what brings us into this. Another way to think of this is we were all individually chosen before the creation of the world, but as a group, we all came together under Christ, under that redemption and through his adoption. So I think that clarifies one major element. When it comes to the questions that might swirl around predestination and am I predestined, the thing to focus on cannot be you. Am I chosen is not the right question to be asking. Because if that's your question, the answer will be no. You shouldn't be chosen. The reason, the evidence, the focus must be off of you and on to Christ. Number four, your election puts the focus, of Christ, focus on Christ instead of on you. And I would urge you, resist that temptation to put the focus on you. But pastor, what about me? I don't care about you. Look at what Jesus did for you. Because those whom God has chosen from eternity, he brings together in Christ. You heard about Christ. 
God is bringing you into that calling. And this is not something for you to doubt. This is a truth that is beautiful, that takes you completely out of the picture from your own salvation. It puts it all in God's hands so that the focus is on him entirely. Now Paul gets to the head, the intellect, and Jesus was really good at connecting the intellect with the heart. You see, there was this one day that Jesus was talking to people, and there were some people in the crowd who thought very highly of themselves. They said, man, look at us, how good we are. We are the chosen ones of God. We are the elect. And Jesus said, now hold on. Are you sure about that? Because those who are the elect don't focus on themselves. They focus on Christ. And Jesus made that clear to them. He said, you're focusing on the wrong place. Those who are truly God's people will do this. This is what he told the crowds that day. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. What a comfort that he knows you. God from eternity foreknew who you would be. He knew the life you would have, the struggles you would be born with, the kind of temptations you would face, where you would live, what you would do for a career, the kinds of things you'd go through in school, the temptations you would have, the sins you would fall for, and the many times you would wander, wander, wander. God foreknew all those things. But more than just foreknowing you, he predestined you. He chose you and said, this one is mine. Regardless of what happens in time, this one is mine. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hands because what God has chosen for his own cannot be taken away. And that's what Jesus would have you take away from this talk about predestination. You ask the question, well, did God predestine me? Did God predestine me? Jesus says, would you just let go of yourself and look at what this means? You've been chosen by God apart from anything you could do. Nothing can take you away from that. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever take you from his hand. So did God predestine me? Here's what I would answer. God calls those whom he elects through the word. The way he gathers his elect is through that message of Christ and through the gospel. Have you heard the gospel? Do you know what Jesus did? Isn't that amazing? The, the, the people whom God elects get that message. And, you know, not an earth-shattering truth here, but this message has gone out to the entire world. That invitation is there. God calls those whom he elects. And then he, every time the gospel is used, we see that this is where God is, is, is matching what he planned in eternity with what is happening in real time. This is amazing to see that on, as a church, every day, every week, we see this message going out into people's hearts and lives. Isn't it incredible that we can see the unseen of plan happening every day? Every time Jesus is mentioned and the gospel is shared and people repent and are assured of their forgiveness, this is the rhythm of God's chosen people. This is how he assures you, yes, you've been chosen before eternity. 
You're connected to that word. Every time someone is baptized, this is amazing. I love how we as a church start to clap and applaud every time a child or every time a person is baptized because this is how God is matching up his plan from eternity in real time. And um, in, in, in uh, Peter's letter, in his first letter, he said that even angels long to see into these things. Like the eternal plan of God is now actually happening. And it is an, isn't it amazing in a baptism how God connects himself to that person and says, what was promised from eternity is now applied to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We should be applauding every time that happens. I think we should even get poster boards and bullhorns. With Ben's approval, who has two-thirds decision on any choice. Every time someone is baptized, and then every time that we gather for the communion, for the Lord's Supper, this isn't just God saying, okay, all y'all are forgiven, but in communion, Jesus comes to you individually, and he says, this is given for you, but for you, for you, for you. This is my body, this is my blood given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Focus on me. I chose you. I know you. Now follow me. So what's left to say? Am I chosen by God? Focus on him. We as a church get to celebrate that every week. And as we go forward, it'll be fun to see what comes up next in Hot Topic, Hot Seat series. But I can guarantee you this, that what we talk about in this room and from this church is solely from that identity that we were chosen by God, not because we were worth choosing, but because of his grace and his mercy. And now as we stand as his children, we stand together. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, there are some teachings in the Bible that are hard to understand, and this one should be. It happened outside of space and time, which we can't imagine, and it happened in your will in your mind, which is a place where we have no, uh, no residence. We, we cannot understand it. And yet you give this teaching to us about how you chose us, and you give it to us for our comfort so that we can see that our salvation had absolutely nothing to do with our participation and that we every day can focus on what Jesus did. This draws our attention from our, ourselves and puts it on him. My prayer is that as we take this message, though it's hard, that its application would be simple. We have no doubt about who we are because we are chosen by your grace and mercy. Bless everyone here. Bless everyone listening to this message that we would have the wisdom to know what to do with that good news. I pray that in Jesus' name.